Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Writer's Story. I'm Kristen. And I'm Meredith. And it is March, and we had a little taste of warm weather, and the trees are starting to bloom, and I've got just tons of daffodils, and then it got cold again. Yes, we're in that push-me-pull-me time of year. I know, the most gloriously, like, perfect week last week. 70s during the day. It almost got to, I think it was 81 one day. I was like, should I find a pair of shorts? (laughs) Right? Sunshine, and now it looks like it could snow. And it did snow um, the other night. It happened happened in the middle of the night, or late at night, and it was... um, and uh, it was 45. So it didn't stick, but it was just yeah. outrageous. Outrageous. <laughs> well, there we are. There we are. So it's, um, but it's a time of new beginnings. And um, Meredith, you are kind of wrapping up or letting, you're, you're with a project that's um, going to have its own little life apart from you. So you're thinking Hopefully. about some new stuff, right? How do you do yeah, that? Yeah. So I, I, you know, there's a time when I'm revising where I either need to have someone else read it or I need to give myself some space from it. And so right now I'm giving myself a little space. I'm doing a little research, um, but I am, I'm sort of taking a break from the book and I'm going to go back with the fresh eyes to do one last edit. Um, but I've been looking at a couple of my projects and just trying to decide which one um, I might like to tackle. And are these projects that you have in drafts, or are they projects that you have noted to yourself that you would like to take on at some point? They're all partial drafts. Uh Uh-huh. And how do you decide what you'll do next? I haven't decided yet, but I think um, I've been going through and looking at them. Um, One, I had to kind of solve a problem. Um, It was a thriller. I needed a really big twist. I figured out what the twist was. And then I started to try to then backfill and try to figure out if I could make it work. Um, And it was going okay. Um, But then I also went to uh, a literary fiction um, novel and I just realized it's still in a, a big, big mess. And I'm not sure if I have the stomach to fix it at this point. <laughs> it's like a back in time and then present day and then, you know, and a big mystery, but then when do you reveal the mystery? And then is that really the mystery? And all that oh, kind of stuff. Oh, goodness. it's a lot. So I kind of, I was like- Intellectually uh, taxing. Yeah, yeah, intellectually taxing. Writer, and and then the last is um, a YA mystery that I've keep circling back to and thinking about. Um, and I, my last edit, this is always sort of interesting, I decided I probably shouldn't kill so many teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. YAs can be pretty bloody. I guess so. But I decided what what would be what would happen if I let like the first one live? <laughs> <laughs> How kind of you! Yeah, so I'm I'm granting. So then, okay, then you have to get rid of her funeral, and you have to then oh, she's still yes. a character, and uh, so it's it's there's a lot of issues. So I'm sort of pecking away at those various things. I haven't quite decided, quite frankly, what it is that I'm definitely going to plow through finish next yeah how about you what are you well i i applaud you for not simply starting a brand new thing which is often my inclination (laughs) these are too Um, these are too hard (laughs) yeah and and we talk about the bright shiny thing the the thing that hasn't yet been done is most perfect right it's the ideal in my mind um but no i am right now uh still in the in the midst of revising this um road trip novel that i had drafted um last well last fall and i have made some significant changes to it instead of leaving from central virginia where we live you and i in real life i um, may have her right now i'm thinking about having her and her um son leave from um the panhandle of florida so the way that they're driving is markedly different. And I I was kind of flippant when I made this change thinking, well, piece of cake, you know, 
but no, I'd already in the draft, I had had allowed for different weather, different stuff that they're seeing as far as the flora and fauna go, also um, the topography. So they're pulling a trailer in an old truck. And as you know, from living here, it can be hard going up and down the mountains basically here with anything, any less than um, high power rig. And yet, but leaving from the Panhandle of Florida, it's really flat and the weather will be quite different as well. So anyway, some of those kinds of things are changes that I had not really fully appreciated that I would need to integrate, but more um, challenging have been, you know, just na- just really nailing down plot and character development, and this this char- my protagonist's voice, which I thought I had pretty well at the outset, but haha, not so much. I don't really <laughs> like what her first kind of her first blush character looks like, um, and so I, I hope anyway. I think we talked about this last month, and I'm still working on really deepening her her character emotionally and also um, with a little bit more sympathy and creating in that context a little bit more complex a person. Mm -hmm. So that is satisfying to a certain extent, but then that's on good days. On other days, it can be demoralizing because I think, oh my gosh, I thought I was going to be so much farther along in this project. Yeah, I always get to a point in my book where I am so hard on myself because I think you know what you could have solved this problem if you had a done more research ahead of time b figured out who this character was before you just started spewing words on the page and had settled these questions and then I have to step back and I realize oh you didn't know any of those things and you had to go through that process You you had to write stuff down in order to find out that you wanted to know more about the character or you had gone down a blind alley and now you need to go over here and that what you needed to research, you know? So yes. 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 And that's what I think. Yep. I think that's what's going on with this one. Meanwhile, I have another idea. (laughs) Of course you do. (laughs) I know that I'm like super excited about, but I am, I'm trying to tell myself that I have been really excited about the project I'm working on now as well. And that aspects of what appeal to me about the idea that I have not yet made real is um, possible. Some of those same general philosophies or themes are possible with this project. And I think also, I think it's good to write down as much about this new idea in a document and save it and tell yourself it's going to be there it'll be there I can come back to it yes yes and I've done a little bit of that but I could definitely do more and it would feel good to get those things down right so that and I then don't... say yeah I try not to leave um of course right now I'm just grazing I told you on three projects but I I try not to leave a project until it is in a, a in a, a finished sort of thing like you've, you've gone through a draft you've gotten yes. as far as you can with this idea um, yes and that is you've done your outline or something just something and then you put it away um because i find it is really challenging i I've, I've sort of been breaking that rule and i've been regretting it yeah i totally get it and that's where i am with this the novel that i'm revising right now i think the draft it's in, I know I want to change and I know how I want to change it. But I that change is only in my mind right now. And I need to execute it on the pages to a degree that will enable me to retrieve it later right. for further revision if I were to set it aside, like at the stage where you are now, where maybe you take a break from it at a certain draft point and do something else for a little while and then come back to it. Yeah, I couldn't right now trust that coming back to it, I would be able to you would remember what you wanted. All the work I've yeah done in some of the thinking about and planning about and so on. So yeah. Yeah, but in the um, on this topic of, you know, thinking about what to write and starting new projects, I um, think about the subjects of the um, of our guest and they are dear subjects to me on which I have written little. And so I'm really excited to talk with him about them. His name is John Yonker and um, he is a 
a writer across genres. He's written plays, um, short plays, short stories, novels. His novels are The Tourist Trail and its sequel, Where, Where Oceans Hide Their Dead. I am familiar with him because of his work for a website called Eco, Ecolit Books, wherein writers are writing about books that have to do with ecology, the environment, animal-human connections. Those are passions of his. He also is the co-founder uh, with Midge Raymond of a press. So he also is in publishing, and that press is called Ashland Creek Press. So I'm really excited um, to bring him on. Awesome. Well, let's go call him up. Hey, John. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. So I was telling Meredith how excited I am that you are joining us because your passion for the environment and animal human connections is one that I share. Oh my goodness, do I ever. But I haven't made that as public in my writing as you have really with, oh my goodness, from all the writing you've done, as we mentioned in our intro to also um, the publishing that you're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, editing and working with other writers who are um, engaging these issues. How, how did you um, start doing this we often ask also and we'd love to hear from folks how they just started um on their writing, writing the path yes well gosh that's how well i i never thought of myself as a writer i did go to journalism school so uh in missouri and i guess i backed into it a bit um i it was something i was you know i i did decently well at and and I didn't know what I wanted to do in college. And I, I realized, well, they've got a pretty good journalism school here. So I'll go, I'll do journalism and realize that you could make a living writing. And I actually started on the advertising side when I got out. But I, I don't know. I've always been a reader. I've always been a writer. And I've just, I, I wish I could say I had a plan. I have no plan. Uh, and in terms of the animals, no plan at all. I, I would say the... Uh, you know, my, my wife, Midge Raymond, is a writer. That helps. Being married to one, it, it becomes part of your your day-to-day. -day. Um, and she's she's been a creative writer long for, for much longer than I have. But we both went to uh, Antarctica many years ago, and we met a penguin researcher. And I would say that was the beginning for me. And, and we subsequently did some time volunteering with this penguin researcher down in Argentina, studying the Magellanic penguins. And it was, uh, we, we were helping with the census. And and it was the first time that I made the connection of, of fishing with the plight of penguins. You know, what you eat is directly connected with the livelihoods of these little creatures that live halfway around the world, you know, because there's fishing nets off the coast of Argentina. and. And, and it was the beginning, it was the beginning. And I wrote a short story called The Tourist Trail. It got published uh, and I realized this is something I want to keep writing about. So it became a novel and then two novels. And and actually that's, that gave birth to Ashton Press, which Mitch and I founded. And we actually just uh, hit our 10 year anniversary. Congratulations. It's, yeah, yeah. So it's been quite a ride. So which journalism school did you go to? Uh, the University of Missouri. And Kansas? At Columbia. Oh, at Columbia. My um, my grandfather is a, is a, was a journalist and graduated from Missouri, Kansas City. Oh, okay, UNKC, yeah. It was, it was good training and I mean, you know, I'm dating myself here, but I, we we had this one class, and I'll never forget it because they it was manual typewriters. Everyone had a manual typewriter, and they would they would play on a tape recorder uh, a city council meeting in Columbia. You were expected to know the city council members. You were you were basically considered uh, yourself a reporter covering city issues. So the teacher would play. Uh, a short clip of the uh, the meeting, or a, a segment of it, and you had to write an article, and you had to say half an hour to do it on a typewriter. And she played it once. You had you got penalized 
for typos on the typewriter. There's no backspace, no whiteout. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. And so, and it's timed, you know, no second chances. Uh, if you misspelled somebody's name, you got a penalty. I mean, it was the pressure. It was brutal. In fact, I think it scared me away from newsrooms entirely, but <laughs> I, I assumed all newsrooms had typewriters and were as brutal as that, but it was a way of, of just, I guess, indoctrinating my, me to the importance of, of, of well, spelling someone's name correctly, but also writing quickly, writing succinctly, um, and uh, it also spurred a, a love of typewriters, which I still have today. Yeah, uh, so do you write on a typewriter still? Oh gosh, I, you know, I in a perfect world, I, I should actually, and I do think there's, but I don't. I write on a, a computer. I just, I, I make, I, I need backspace. I, yeah, I need, spell I check as our friend. I, I can't go back, but I do appreciate the value of, um, you know, back when you you had a certain amount of paper, and you had to think about you you didn't want to waste paper, and. Uh, every stroke, you felt it. You know, it actually took a fair amount of effort. Um, it, you know, you, you'd have to think before you put a sentence down, uh, which you don't now. And there's two sides to that. I actually kind of like not having to think. You can kind of do that stream of consciousness. Yeah. But um, I, I have a feel. My theory is right now the world. You know, if you look at the internet era that we live in, I think a little bit. What What's lost is that self-editing. That we did when we had typewriters yeah and things were very you know there were physical limitations to how much could fit on a printed page you know there's no limitations anymore on the internet so people just go on and on and on and uh so i think the art of editing has has been somewhat lost <laughs> i have to say that i feel that um, most journalists that i meet who have switched to novel writing um don't really have a, as many issues with writer's block mm. as other people <laughs> because of that training, I guess, to just, you had, yeah. you, it's time to write and you have to write, write, you know? Yeah. Just bang it out. And the, and, the, and you know, the, uh, the, um, I'm blanking. I, what is it? The inverse pyramid that, the, where you, you put the most important element of what you're trying to write in that first paragraph. Um, is relevant to creative writing too. It's get to the point. You can, you can go. You know, it's it's understanding what you're trying to say as quickly as possible. And, and you might, in your creative writing, bury that six pages in. But it's sure helpful to know what you're trying to say before you start. I just did a. We do a yearly panel. My writing group does called First Hundred Words. We just did it on Saturday for the Virginia Festival of the Book, and one of the people was like, "Why a hundred words? Why not two pages?" I was like, first of all, <laughs> you think that we suddenly have a lot of time to read two pages, but honestly, you can tell a lot of stuff from just a hundred words and you should grab somebody and you should have your story started. You shouldn't be filling me in on the backstory or, you know, that kind of stuff. So it is, it is amazing. It's totally amazing. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. And this, particularly in this day and age, if, if you can't grab your reader quickly, uh, it's... So what came first for you, short stories, plays, novels, or just all at once? Um, short story, then novel, um, plays, um, yeah. And now I do a little bit of everything, you know, and now we publish, of course, other writers as well. So uh, we, uh, it, it's it's all connected though, I've realized. You know, I, I the, the different genres, Sometimes I find it's refreshing to switch gears. Uh, you know, what I just wrote a short story actually, um, and it was great because novels are brutal. <laughs> I, I I don't actually like to write novels. They're so long, you know. And, so <laughs> and uh, I, I I you know I enjoy finishing one, and sometimes I I'll probably write another one. In fact, I'm working on one, but. It's just, it's multi-year for me. I mean, the tourist trail took many years. The second one took easily seven plus years. Whereas a short story, maybe you can get it done in a month if you're really, if you've got the idea well-formed and it just kind of flows. That's amazing. That's a, you know, small miracle. So it's nice to mix it up, I think. Yeah. 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 And plays, they have so more, they have so fewer words on the page. 
I, I write screenplays as well, and so that's oh, kind of nice. Great. You know, you're like, oh, four lines of dialogue, and we're on to the next page. <laughs> oh, and I actually, I actually started um, doing screenplays years ago, and in that actually, not not much came out of it. But what came out of it is 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 the idea of telling a story, and and with screenplays, you 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 know you, you can you have to tell a story that's just as rich as you do with a novel you're using considerably fewer words but but yeah you have it's the, knowing where you're going you have to know where you're going you've exactly those plot points you you got to know where the turns come if and... your story isn't there it's gonna really show up it's sort of like it's like sort of the skeleton if there's pieces missing there's no skin and <laughs> it's pretty obvious <laughs> as opposed to going into someone's head and staying there for a hundred pages you know <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And John, about with the editing that you're doing as well, that takes a lot of time. How, how do you balance some of the? And I think about like this anthology that you have, um, kind of helping folks think about how to write from like an animal's perspective, how to write animals. Um, you're so you're doing also some mentoring for writers. How do you balance these things, or do you just take them as they come? We kind of take them as we come in. <clears throat> It wouldn't happen without Midge. Midge is the um, the true editor, I'd say, of the publishing house. I I do a lot of. I mean, we work together with writing for animals. I think you're talking about that collection of of stories. Yeah. We decided we wanted to do something. This is this goes back a few years. We we first did two collections of short stories among animals, uh, and among animals too, and we. You know, we our press the point our we kind of have a, a very distinct point of view with the press and it's evolved as we've evolved but it's it's very um, it's a pro- very progressive view of of how humans and animals relate to one another and how humans need to rethink the relationship with animals and so writing for animals that we were very careful with that title it wasn't so much about writing about animals but. The thinking of the writer as as an activist or an advocate for animals, and how what tips are there for writers, and and so we wanted to collect something that we could actually give to some of our authors as well, because we wanted to we want to see more works like that where, um, where you know there's a and there's a and I don't want to be too judgmental, but I I'm a little judgmental where the books that I really respond to are uh, novels, nonfiction, are are lately and when it comes to animals are books that are trying to to advocate for animals and you're you're trying to make the world better for them a lot of an, a lot of books historically about animals or nature have usually been about making the world better for humans yes you know and you know and the anthropomorphizing or, of animals yes yeah and we, the, the animal's a prop but in the end, it's a book about oh, I, I'm a better person now because I've done such and such, and and not that that's not a valid novel or story or whatever. We we really think that I mean now obviously with the you know climate change, endangered species, uh, there's so many unsustainable things going on in our culture and our planet that we want to push the envelope and we want to encourage authors to to think about that and think about the language they use and the way they write about animals the voices they give animals you know one thing i always say is animals aren't voiceless obviously we we're interpreting them as best we can and we're going to fail but if you can do a the the better job you do of it it, there's a real responsibility if you do a poor job of it uh you can really do a lot of damage and and i don't want to call out the the book jaws and criticize it too heavily but even the author of that book has had regrets over it because you think about that book and the movies and how that's villainized these animals yeah uh and i'm from the midwest so i grew up my first experience with a shark was jaws yeah and i thought you if you put one foot in that ocean some animal is just going to be waiting to kill you and that was how, I mean, I didn't know. I, I didn't grow up along the ocean. I had no idea. And so think of the, the responsibility that writers have to, you're creating these worlds. And, um, you know, and now, now if you realize a lot of great documentaries about what's going on with sharks and the shark finning, and, and now they're an endangered, various species of shark are endangered and they're suffering. And so we as we as writers have great responsibility and our words do have an impact and so that's that is definitely a, a our core mission 
as, as a press. Yeah, boy, I really appreciate that. And it brings me to another question I wanted to ask you, and that's about um, like how you sort of balance the, so I'll, I'll ask it this way. The problems we face with respect to humans' relationship to the non-human natural world are so huge. <laughs> and of yeah. course, climate change is rocketing toward us. And we're sort of, you know, futzing around, arguing over, you know, it's anyway, it's seemingly, well, you know what I'm talking about. So how do you maintain the sort of, um, I don't know if it's optimism, but energy to do this when it can feel to me anyway, like so monumental, a challenge to correct our ideas about the non-human natural world and our relation to it. And and the all the different ways in which we need to change i think oh my gosh you know writing it's so slow and who's gonna read it and are they gonna change when they read it and how do you deal with all that oh uh, well alcohol helps ah! <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm joking somewhat but uh, <laughs> you know it is depressing at times it really is and and i uh, it takes a toll and um you know the one one of the benefits as a writer it, it it's hard i think we're lucky midge and i because we have the press and, and I, I will mention a book a plug for a book that's coming out in may by a woman who's a who runs a hen rescue in australia huh? the book is called saving animals and it's and it's about future activists and it's all about kids around oh. the world who are advocating for animals who are protesting who are rescuing who are uh, giving up eating meat all of these things and it's so positive and and i just love the book because it gives me hope you know because sometimes you you know you get to a certain age and you think god no one's going to change uh, but change is happening hopefully yes. it'll happen it'll, it'll, hopefully it'll accelerate but it is happening so that gives me hope um and i think you just you you balance you balance the big with the small, you know, I focus on little things, you know, we have some rescue cats here in our house that we're, that we love and we, you know, we donate to some, the, the animal rescue organizations that we love and, you know, they're, we just focus on the small things that you can do. I, I do think, I think sometimes it is overwhelming and uh, it's, it's easy to just say, well, it's too late, let's just give up, but you know, that's, in a way, that's kind of the easy way out. The hard way yeah. is to say, yeah, it is hopeless, but, you know, we can all do something. And if we all do something, we all feel a little bit better about what we've accomplished. And it's not about being perfect. Well, I'm not perfect. No one's going to be perfect. Yeah. We all, you know, do something negative to the planet or to animals in some way, accidentally, unintentionally. Um, nobody's perfect. And I really don't subscribe to that. I think everyone... Yeah. I, the idea is that if we can all just try to do a little bit better, you know, yeah. I think back to, you know, when I camped with, as a kid with my dad, he always, you know, you, you would say, leave the campsite cleaner than you found it. Right. And it, and that's a great way to yeah. live. I think if yeah. you can think about, can we do things that, do, that, you know, make the world a little bit better. And Yeah. And the work that you do with the press and the writing, like you said, words matter. And I mean, like you talked about the power that that, Jaws story had on your ideas about sharks. It works both ways, right? So, absolutely. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Amazing. There's amazing literature out now, and in and, and documentaries and uh, movies that that are 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 challenging preconceived notions of uh, of well, how we think of animals. You know, uh, is it my octopus teacher? The octopus it? teacher. Isn't that up for a document? Yeah. Isn't that up for Academy Award for documentary? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen? But it not there? for best octopus award. <laughs> Clearly <laughs> robbed, robbed by I don't know who. I haven't seen it yet, but I would. I I, I love films like that. I think. Um, yeah. I, I was a huge it. Jane Goodall fan as a child. I oh. thought. I thought that sounded like the best job. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. She's fascinating too because she caught, uh, you know, talk about anthropomorphism. You know, she caught so much abuse from the established scientific community, and that and that word is something we talk about in the book. We're also teaching a class called Writing for Animals, and that comes up a lot about 
you know, certainly in the scientific scientific profession, you're taught not to anthropomorphize. You know, don't project you know emotions onto these creatures. But the problem and the great mistake science has made is they've started off assuming animals are really stupid uh-huh. and use science to somehow prove that they're smarter than we assumed going into it. And I, I, I've opened the book saying that the more we study animals, the smarter they get. And <laughs> what, what if we assume they're really, really smart in their own ways, yeah. and then our studies could prove otherwise, as, as opposed to just assuming the human being is the smartest creature on the planet um, because we do, we drive cars, for example, as opposed to birds who somehow don't need cars to get <laughs> or whales that communicate thousands of miles to one another in ways that we don't even comprehend. Well, I think the other thing, though, about emotions is we discover that animals have uh, very strong emotions. And, you know, an elephant will grieve for a baby that dies and that sort of thing. You can't look at an an animal and say, oh, they don't care. Or they don't feel pain. That's that nonsense. And too bad our, our podcast listeners can't see the cat that just... Yes. That just entered the frame. <laughs> I'm I'm interested a little bit just because I I'm um, finishing a book that um, I inject a lot of politics into it. In this case, it's you know gun control and gun reform and that sort of stuff. And I I, I always feel it's a very difficult path to walk with fiction. Because you don't want to be preachy, but at the same time, you don't want to just bury that message. What, how, what is your process as you're writing? Do you feel like you have to reel yourself back or push yourself forward? Or You, you do, yeah. And, and preachiness is tough because we are preaching. <laughs> we absolutely are. And, you know, but what, I, what I always say is, hey, every writer has something to say. It's just sometimes what you're saying is is not offensive to most people. So it's not considered preaching. Um, Interesting, yeah. You know, but if you're saying, like you said, I don't think we should do such and such with guns, or I don't think you should eat meat, and you know that you're going to be trying to get that book in front of people who are vehemently opposed to that view, worldview, you have to be a lot more creative and really think about, you really have to think about your audience and where they live, um, you know, for, well, case in point, I'm vegan. I wasn't born vegan. I, if you had asked me when I was in, well, people did ask me, uh, I, uh, when I was in college, cause that's when I first encountered a vegetarian. I'm from the Midwest, you know, raised on barbecue. And I could not have imagined being the way I am now, could not have imagined. But now that I'm the way that I am now, and I have this worldview, when I write, and if I'm trying to convince someone to to kind of come over to my side of the world, I keep in mind the way I used to be. And I say, what can I do to convince old John, who is stubborn as can be, who is, you know, couldn't even have imagined, you know, I was an athlete, you know, you got to eat meat for protein, right? That was one of the things I believed. Um, you know, how do you work on that? And, and so it takes a lot of empathy and a lot of, of understanding and a lot of creativity in the sense that if you're going to do what I, w- I would always say is if someone's going to do, if you're going to write a novel that um, about, you know, you know, pushing veganism, for example, I wouldn't lead with that. I would work that in later. I would first maybe leverage, maybe it's a mystery novel. Maybe you use that genre and it, one of the themes is veganism or animal rights, but it does, you don't have to lead with that. You can get the reader hooked into the characters, the murder mystery at hand, and then weave that angle into it as you go through. So by the end of the novel, you might have opened a few minds to to the story. I mean, my, my novel, The Tourist Trail, I wanted to be first and foremost a thriller. It's uh, and, and that's another tip I would say is the, the main character there are three main characters, but one's an FBI agent who's not vegan, but he has to become vegan to, he, he goes undercover. So that device is a way of, the, of uh, and he hates it. It's a miserable experience. You know, how do you do, I'm, I'm playing this role. Like I can't wear leather. I can't do this. I can't, I'm, all, I'm screwing it up. Uh, you know, I got to hang out with these people. I, and, and, and 
I, I thought that was a great way to uh, pull your reader into that world without forcing them into it. Because you know, here's and this person is clearly convicted, con- conflicted as a as, as a as a character. You know, well, he's, fish he out of fish out of water is the best, right? Oh, it's great. I love fish because out. because two vegans aren't going to have a conversation in the same <laughs> way as a vegan's going to have with a carnivore, right? Because you you can't yeah, have absolutely. You, you, you yeah. wouldn't say like, oh, John, what do you eat? One <laughs> vegan would never say that to another vegan. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so there's, there's so many things. Yeah, the fish out of water is perfect. And so, and I really think genre, you can do a lot with genre too, you know, leveraging that. to, to re, If your goal is to reach a, a mass audience, uh, you know, if it's a romance novel, a thriller, a mystery, whatnot, uh, because there, there are certain elements of that genre that readers expect. And if you can deliver those elements, you can also maybe sneak in some other elements that they may not expect, but they might, you know, they might learn something along the way or, or maybe change. And going back to the tourist trail, it was really the, the, the goal with that was eat less seafood if you will. That was my goal with that novel. And I did reach out. I did have some people write to me and they said, you know, I didn't even know that. I didn't know that was going on down in Argentina. I didn't know that penguins were getting caught up in nets that were catching seafood that I eat. And because I love penguins, they would say, I love penguins. And that's the other thing. It's, you know, if you're advocating, it's harder to advocate for a cow than a penguin, obviously, because penguins, it's hard. Or to a snake. Something. Or exactly. Indiana uh, so Jones did his job there. <laughs> yeah. so, so anyway, I'm, I'm rambling a bit, but there there are a lot of techniques, and I think uh, you you just start from your your audience and, and work backwards from from there. That's great. That's great. I, I I've heard of a lot of thrillers um, around climate change issues, and that does sound at first a little odd because you're like climate change is this kind of slow thing in here but here we're gonna have a thing but there has been an incredible escalation and the question is what can we do mm-hmm. and so you can create a sci-fi kind of thriller where there is something we could do like what if we did this one thing that could save all of humanity and the penguins and <laughs> you know can, can we pull it off and i i think that's a i think that's really interesting because I think sometimes science fiction, for instance, goes in places that we haven't considered yet. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think about um, dramas too. That where John, you talked about, you know, kind of getting your reader invested in the character and the character's personal problems or personal passions, and um, those don't have to be the the issue um, or have anything to do with the issue, but. That, but they're a real person that the reader then invests their attention and maybe their own self in, you know, where we um, feel our an identity with the protagonist. And then with that identification, follow them in their wrestling with with issues. So, mm-hmm. and I think, mm-hmm. yeah, and I think you're doing some of that, Meredith, with yours. Yeah. We need characters that we can connect with. We don't have to connect with all the characters. If you just give them one, you know, to, to represent. And, and of course you need conflict. So it's, that's the other, you need, you know, so it's good to have a diverse range of characters in terms of points of view and and worldviews. So. Well, and I think it's really, I think what I love what you were talking about is sort of assigning your, your young self to the skeptic that's possibly (laughs) reading it. I love that idea because you know, I'm, I've got, I've got a character who is, you know, pro gun rights in the book, and I'm not treating him as an evil person at all. Trying to think about what is it to someone who, you know, like who, you know, hunts every winter to fill his freezer, and he considers this as a necessity. He's not going and shooting people. He's just, you know, doing this thing. And so I think there's a way of life, and I'm sure. You probably knew people in the Midwest like that as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I often say to 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 writers is that um, you know with the, the with animal rights in general, I think I think most humans love animals. We may only love a few species of animals. We might only love the animal in our house, 
Well, it's not like we, you know, you can eat animals and still love animals. And it's a lot of the elements, the issues are more less about the animals and more about tradition, religion, tradition, uh, economy. Uh, I mean, you know, I I was um, thinking about, you know, I wrote a play uh, called Sanctuary and it's about it's set during Thanksgiving and just how loaded that holiday is in terms of. uh, you know, you have a turkey, right? Uh, and if if one of the children come home and decide, no, I'm not eating turkey, I'm giving up turkey, and think of the conflict that arises from that. And uh, there's just, there's, that's not so much about, you know, we, we hate turkeys, it's about this is a family tradition. And how dare you question a tradition that goes back hundreds of years, you know? Turkeys... The, the, the emotional lives of turkeys don't factor into it. Although there's, there is guilt, there's underlying guilt there that can be tapped into or we wouldn't be pardoning tur- turkeys every year. <laughs> right. Uh, there is guilt there you can tap into as a writer I work with. Uh, I think a lot of people do feel guilty about it. We had a friend and neighbor in New York who was um, vegetarian, but she still would eat lobster when we went to the ocean. And, but before we had the lobster, we had to thank the lobster for giving up its life for us. And I thought, you know, there's all sorts of traditions, I think, in all sorts of cultures where you sort of are thanking, mm-hmm. you know, the animal. Yeah, yeah and, and that actually, that's, I think that's, a, it's a step, certainly. And it certainly, if you, it, it goes back, it goes back to, um, well, you know, Animals were were often given godlike qualities by humans, uh, so you absolutely did have to thank animals because you know, and you couldn't overhunt in many cultures because there were animal gods who would punish you, and you wouldn't be able to hunt anymore. You would you wouldn't be able to find them if you you were too greedy. So there was there were elements that humans were you know qualities that humans were projecting on animal species from probably since the beginning of humans. Uh, that that we've um, that we're still grappling with. Um, the the point one point I make though a, a lot, and I I wrote another play called Paleo, which deals with it's a junk it's a um, the play is set in today, but it also jumps back to Paleolithic period. And the idea is we have a, a contemporary ca- character who's on the Paleo diet, and so he <laughs> says, well, you know, the cavemen they had they ate animals, and the the the, his girlfriend, who is who's, who's given, who's just given up eating meat, she says, "Well, we can evolve, right? I mean, you somehow learned how to use that new iPhone in 24 hours, and you didn't have a problem. You know, we we can we we adapt to so many things very quickly. But when it comes to food, we we go back to the cave people and say, well, they they ate that way. We have to eat that way. Um, it's amazing where we pick and choose evolution, where we can evolve, and where we're." Uh, somehow rooted in uh, uh, well you know if you if you ever want to see how much we can change you just have to pick up uh, like a cookbook from the 50s (laughs) 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 and then you're like wow that was stuff that people ate every night and we don't eat any of that stuff anymore you know everything had marshmallows and (laughs) gelatin (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> open up a can that's for sure open up a can of, of uh, yeah what is There's it mushroom cream of mushroom soup and <laughs> soup. yeah there now you're speaking my midwestern language <laughs> yeah so john it sounds like you often think in terms of fiction that is um think of these issues and then imagine how characters might um finesse them and might wrangle with and you know i think any issue worthy of the title of an issue has there are good reasons on all sides right mm-hmm. that's why we debate it so um it sounds like maybe you think in terms of fictionalizing those debates and enabling am i am i right about that i would say yes you're absolutely right i i tend to i definitely live more in fiction than, than non-fiction no question yeah yeah i don't know why other than i think it's what I read. I feel like fiction sometimes goes where facts don't. 
you know, it goes, it just cuts through a lot of things. If you create the right characters and the right situations, it, it goes somewhere that a, a nonfiction book, and I read plenty of nonfiction. I, I, and that's where I do a lot of my research on, on various species. I, I read tons, but I, I usually don't return to those books. I return to novels. Those are the mm. books I read again and again, generally. So, and there's some, and so I guess that's why I tend to write them, write these uh, types of books. Well, I do feel like there's a lot of um, writers out there who are who are focused on nonfiction to help to try to change people's minds about oh, yeah. all the issues that you're talking about. But I think you're right in a way. Um, there's an audience for that, and perhaps you're reaching a different audience. In some cases, there's probably a lot of overlap, but um, I think it's a great it's an opportunity to reach them in a different way, just like a documentary. You know. Yeah, yeah, and I, th- I, I, perhaps it goes back to when, uh, you know, Midge and I volunteered with this penguin researcher who uh, is, um, because she, hanging out with these scientists day in and day out, um, it, it just kind of soaked into you, and you felt like you were trying to interpret what you were learning from them to a larger audience or a lay audience, if you will. And I, I do, yeah, you know, I, I like that that living in that world in between the the nonfiction and the fiction and, and trying to interpret what, the, what they're seeing. And because sometimes scientists can't say, say, say uh, certain things, you know, they, they might off the cuff, but they're not going to put that in a research paper because that, that's their world, you know, <laughs> but I can put it in into a novel, you know, and um, well, and in fact, during this, um, during this volunteer trip, we, we, met a penguin um called turbo and there's a his, he's given a name he um and he's actually in the tourist trail as well i've changed his name to protect his privacy <laughs> <laughs> you, you can you can google him actually he's got a facebook page um it's it, very famous it's, penguin uh, he is quite famous he's got quite a crowd his uh it's the organization i believe is called penguin sentinels now but it's out of the university of washington and they have been going for 25 years to this particular colony down in Argentina. And this penguin turbo, for some reason, he decided to hang out with the researchers. They don't feed him. They don't encourage this. And he set up a nest under their pickup truck, which is how he got the name turbo. And so he became, he's kind of their, you know, uh, evangelist, if you will, because he actually will come up to people. He's curious about people who go into their research lab. They'll follow them around. Um, he's just an interesting penguin and every year I keep an eye on him and, and in fact we, we get their newsletter and, and Dee Borsma who's the researcher will write she goes Turbo came back again because you know these penguins go away in the spring and you don't know if they're going to make it back in, right. in the fall and, yeah. and, and we're always kind of waiting is, you know, is Turbo going to make it back and he, he's still kicking he's still going well, how, how long do they live how old is he Oh, well, he, I think he is probably eight or nine years old, um, but they have documented, because Dee has been going there for over 25 years, and so there is one banded penguin that's over 25 years. Wow. Uh, wow. Cool. I had it's no cool. idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's and amazing. They, you talk about tough lives. I mean, these birds, oh my goodness. Did you see those videos? It was pretty early in the pandemic where they took the penguins on a tour. Yes, yes. That was so. Yeah. That was so amazing. Where they went, they visited the rest of the aquarium. Did you see that, Kristen? It was no. it was just so cute, and they videotaped it, and they went, "Oh, what's all these exhibits?" You know, <laughs> walking through them. <laughs> I think they took them also to an art museum because everything was shut. <laughs> everything was shut. It was really really cute. Well, my day job, um, I work at the University of Virginia and um, in the Office of Research, so. I'm always trying to make um, research more exciting. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot going on. It's- yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, and you, I do feel like there is a moment. It's always interesting to, to, to mark a moment where clearly not everyone believes this, but a lot of the world is now looking at scientists and saying, we have a pandemic. Mm-hmm. They very quickly used a lot of their knowledge and skill and came up with a vaccine, you know, yeah. to solve this. We could do this with other issues, too, um, if we invest 
the money and the energy and the resources and all these, you know, great brains that we have. Um, and, uh, and afford some respect and attention. Yes. Yeah. Much yeah. deserved respect and attention. Yeah. 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 This question has not been, um, has not received much respect over the past uh, four plus years. Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> no, and I, I do remember there was a there was a great picture. I think it was when Hillary Clinton became the, um, the you know, came to the State Department under Obama, and it was called the Liberation of the State Department, <laughs> where everyone was like, "Yeah, you know, the French, you know," <laughs> um, and. I imagine there was something a little similar at NIH and <laughs> so oh. just because a lot of people well, have been you know, driven out, you know, it's just been really hard. And the one thing too is I think, one thing from a writer's perspective, I, I'm attracted to heroic characters. And, you know, if I look at the history of literature, uh, you know, that the stereotypical, if you go back a hundred plus years, the stereotypical heroic, one of the many heroic characters was the explorer, was, uh, you know, the Scott or Amundsen going down to Antarctica or going to some distant land. And and now I feel like, I believe that a lot of the heroic characters are these naturalists who are out there studying, uh, advocating for these species of animals that we may not even be aware of yet, that we may not have discovered yet or, or may be endangered. Think of the, the challenge it is to study a species that's declining mm-hmm. precipitously and emotionally how difficult that is. Uh, yeah. I mean, that, that, that to me is worthy of a novel. And it I, is. And I, I agree. You know, and I just want to see, I as a reader want to read more of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, I think it's important. I think the heroes now are the people that are trying to save this planet, you know, in various ways. And yeah. I, I want to see more of these books written and movies made because the, these are important. You know, it's not just about going to Mars, for example. And I, I watched the Mars landing recently. The, the yeah, that's fascinating. But I, I have great respect for the, the people that are off in the wilderness, you know, doing what they can to, to save obscure species that most people have never heard of, including me. Yeah, uh, and, and I share even. that interest, boy, with, um, and the, the, the pathos in that it involves. I mean, that, as you said, I mean, the emotional piece of this for folks who, um, you know, who have invested their lives out of love for, um, aspects of the planet these creatures how i that's a wonder to me i share your your fascination with how to go about that and i sometimes think about um the native peoples all around the planet and i wonder if some of those experiences aren't if they're not somewhat analogous you know they to have been so as we're learning now so late how thoughtfully the indigenous peoples um, managed, we can use that word, the lands on which they out and in through which they lived. Um, And then to see that so despoiled, uh, how do you manage that emotionally? And of course, there's a long history of it turning against, you know, of of suicides and other self-harm because I think in part of the grief and the helplessness in the face of all of that. But it's a fascinating piece to me. And I share, I think, as you said, though, to call them heroes is so fitting. Um, yeah. These are these are great people shouldering heavy tasks and moving, moving forward with them is very poignant. Well, hopefully um, some of these um, writers or characters that you're, you were talking about in your your friend's book will um, will will create an appetite for more <laughs> more of these characters. I, I do I do believe that a lot of um, a lot of youth are very interested in these yeah. topics. You know, and I have a teenager, and he's very much like he's very cynical about the world ending. You know, and yeah. um, 
you know, and not, you know, and he's like, I'm the one that has to be here, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> even if I live to a hundred, I'm not going to be on this planet, you know, as long as he's going to be inheriting it. So I think, it, I think it's an interesting issue. Well, we have just, this has been so great to talk with you yes, um, tonight. Thank and, you so and, much, John. And I feel like we know Midge just a little bit more. I didn't realize you guys were married, and golly, it'd be fun to visit with her, too. Um, she, I hope you'll a, give her our best. Oh, yeah. She's an amazing writer. So I, oh, yeah, tremendous. I and she's written about penguins as well. Uh, she has a novel called My Last Continent, which is I would highly recommend it. Awesome. awesome. That's Midge Raymond for our listeners. Yes. Um, well, thank you, John. and. Thank you. We look forward to seeing the latest from you, developments at Ashland Creek Press and your own um, personal projects. Great. Well, thank you both for having me. A real pleasure. That was such a great conversation. So yeah. interesting. You know, oh my gosh, so great. Yeah, yeah. And I was really excited to have the chance to really talk about some of the stuff that's been on my mind writing about controversial issues you're getting mail because you have written about the bible which is you know if we talk about like gun control bible veganism i think they all <laughs> i think we're hitting all the sacred cows we're they, slaying all the sacred slaying cows. Them, but but gently you know with the... <laughs> That's right. um, so so i mean i i think there's a there it's it's interesting to to write about things that people are passionate about Yes, and I'm so glad you asked about that, writing about um, controversial issues or just how you um, how you write about things that you want folks to be thinking about in the but write it in the context of a gripping story. Um, so yeah, that was fun to think about. And I just am constantly thinking about writing about environmental issues and how you know and that struggle of, how to write what to write does it matter the, the issue the the problems are urgent um yeah but i i do appreciate the power of words and story for shaping the ways that we think about the world and ourselves in it and that that kind of keeps me going too what was really um nice to to, to talk to John as I felt this um, incredible optimism or just sort of um, sort of peacefulness about the process yeah. and I think it made me understand that when you are doing um, the work that you care so much about um, for whatever impact it's having that you can have some peace with that you know, the forgiving yourself. That's a good point. Yeah. Just by doing that, you are all, you are doing it. Right. So having, I think then there's, there's, you know, famous stories of people saying, oh, you know, my work has been meaningless, you know, and you're like, well, how many did you think you were going to reach? Is it okay to reach 10 people? Is it okay to reach a hundred? Like, what was your number that says this was a successful venture? Are you going to, how are you going to judge yourself? Yeah, and I think about the another alternative is what else would you have done? So I think about that sometimes. You know, um, John said something at one point, well, you know, maybe people might have this inclination to just give up. And I think, but but giving up isn't an option because yeah. this is what you do. Chain it's yourself to a fishing yeah. vessel. <laughs> what did you say? Chain yourself to a fishing vessel. <laughs> Yeah. in Argentina. <laughs> yeah, but that you're that that you will write about this because you're a writer and it's something you care about. So yeah. however the whatever the impact or effect is almost irrelevant. It's just this is what you'll do. Yeah. Yeah. But yes. So so anyway, great conversation. Yes. And um, perfect oh, for spring, yeah. as I'm watching all the birds um, emerge. <laughs> yes, we've got a couple of pairs of Canadian geese that are cracking me up because they're, I think they're looking for places to set up house. <laughs> 
or get their nests built. And they're, I think they're eyeing places that are a little bit more high traffic areas of our, our few acres here. And they give me what I call the stink eye. <laughs> when I come a little too close. They're like, what are you doing here? We are going to have a home and you're messing with our mojo. <laughs> anyway, they're, yeah. It's fun to see the birds coming back around. Yep. Yeah. And the buds on the trees. It yeah. It will be on spring soon. Absolutely. Well, it was lovely to talk with you. And uh, next month we'll have another exciting guest. <laughs> yet to be revealed. Yes. <laughs> and we'll be even further into spring. So that will be lots great. of fun. So. All right. Well, until next time. Till then. Take bye. care. Bye.